Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, whether you are joining us on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Welcome to our, let's see, um, our first guest appearance um, and panel discussion for Drop the Mic Mondays. Um, my name is Natasha. I am the organizing director or co-director of About Face Veterans Against the War. Um, we are excited about these Monday conversations because it gives us an opportunity um, to really have a discussion around the military industrial complex. So whether you are a veteran, a neighbor of a military base, or at this point, the general public and, and have an understanding around the contradiction of the military industrial complex, which um, thrives. Um, and we're seeing in real time what that looks like. And so I just want to give a brief overview for those who may be new to joining us. Apologize for the background noise. Um, my pup is vocal at times when someone is near my door, um, but hopefully you can hear my voice okay. Um, and so, you know, the military industrial complex, right, is um, something that we definitely organize around and is really our banner campaign in About Face, where, you know, years ago, almost a decade ago, we had um, strategy sessions to, um, to really understand what is the veterans um, place in speaking about our experiences, how can we not just organize ourselves, um, but really, how can we have conversations with our neighbors? So we really are convicted to build power um, and have conversations and understanding and organizing around the military industrial complex, which really is the network of individuals and in institutions um, that are involved in and benefit from um, the production and use of military weapons, technologies, and, and talent. And, you know, depending on where, again, your proximity to the U.S. military or even in your local community, the police department, which we know through the Department of Defense's 1033 program, a lot of police departments, um, you know, are an extension of or are at a minimum outfitted to look, you know, most um, like, a, you know, a military um, deployment um, you know, brigade or squad, right? And so we believe deeply that this touches us all, no matter what your proximity um, is. And particularly if you are and live in um, communities um, that are black, indigenous, um, people of color, um, poor and marginalized, that you understand, um, you know, quite, quite honestly, what that impact is to you. And so, Welcome everyone. If you are here on this live, just sharing that and knowing that this is a community conversation, please share this link, um, share it with your neighbors, um, onto your social media and invite folks into the conversation. We are, we have a great, you know, term in terms of um, folks who are going to join us in the coming weeks. We would love it if you are doing work in your community and you would love to join us. Um, you can definitely reach out to us. Um, at aboutfaceveterans.org and um, join us on the platform and let's talk about the work around the military industrial complex, how we work together um, to, to you know, ensure that the people have what they need 
from a you know reinvestment um regenerative economy um sort of mindset so i'm so excited for you all to be here with us today um, I really want us to, to be able to get into this conversation with Stephanie um, from the Cost of War Project. I'm so excited to have um, her on with us today. We're going to break down militarism, colonialism, imperialism, racism, um, and you know the systemic, structural, and institutional oppression that um, you know is is often at the intersections of the the military-industrial complex. Um, and so, you know, what, what I'm looking forward to is for us to be able to get into this conversation. If you are joining us, no matter what platform, you should be able to drop a comment in the chat, engage with us. If you have questions, um, we would love to be able to take some of them as time allows before we, um, before we move to close today. So Without further ado, Shauna, please jump in here, introduce yourself, um, and let's get into the discussion for today. Hi, everybody. I'm Shauna Foster, co-director for About Face Veterans Against the War. That's right. We broadcast this live 2 p.m. Eastern every Monday, uh, drop the mic Mondays, but you can also catch it as a podcast later on. So that's a link that I shared, anchor.fm slash vetsaboutface but you can find Vets Without Face on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you'll be able to join this live conversation, ask us questions, but now if you miss a week, you can catch it on our podcast. And we really just want this to be a place where anti-war activists come together and talk about what's happening in the movement right now. Um, you know, it's interesting, Natasha, you bring up our over-militarized police, uh, which has been an occupational force for lots of communities in this country. And uh, I've been seeing meme after meme about how police departments have a bigger budget than the Ukrainian military. It's kind of wild to think about how our police department could, um, uh, the police department alone in New York could fight a foreign nation with the amount of money and equipment that they have. Um, and they have so much money and so much equipment, military equipment, that they are donating it to Ukraine and sending it to Ukraine to be able to do that. Uh, do we really need a police budget that big? Uh, I feel like for the 1033 program in particular, like I paid for this military equipment twice. I paid for it as a federal taxpayer to get it sent overseas somewhere. And then I paid for it again locally for my police to buy it and to militarize it against me. And now that equipment is going to Ukraine. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is a great place to be able to have these kinds of discussions about the bloated budgets of both the military and the police and uh, and how we're coming together. There's actually a great action that just happened today in Boston from Ram Inc. Resist Abolish the Mic. They were on top of the, I don't know if it's the headquarters, they were on top of a Raytheon building doing a banner drop, linking their arms together, and got arrested, and they're protesting how much money is going to private defense contractors. Uh, some $14 trillion has been spent on the Department of Defense since 2001 to fiscal year last year, 2021. Half of that money, so $7 trillion, has gone to private defense contractors. That's not for bridges. That's not for schools. That's not for your health care. That is your taxpayer dollars. I grew up hearing about that all the time. I grew up in Nebraska hearing about my taxpayer dollars. My taxpayer dollars are going to Raytheon to be able to buy the latest and greatest weapons 
to eventually sell that back to the police. And then when a war breaks out, the police department will give it to Ukraine. This is just the society that we're living in. And I'm so glad that we have Stephanie Saval with us today from Brown University's Cost of War Project to help us make sense and break down this, this kind of dynamic that we're living through. Uh, just to give a quick bio, she is the co-director at the Cost of War Project, Brown University's Watson Institute for International Public Affairs. She's an anthropologist of militarism, security, and civic engagement, and her research is on the United States post-9-11 wars and militarized policing in Rio de Janeiro favelas. Savelle has published a number of academic journals and media outlets and is co-author of The Civic Imagination, Making a Difference in American Political Life. Thank you, Stephanie, so much for being with us today. How did you get to be an anthropologist of militarism? How does that happen to somebody? Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you know, the issues that you're raising are just near and dear to my heart. So I'm really happy to be having this conversation. I, um, you know, it, it, it really arose organically for me. I was uh, doing my, my PhD, my dissertation work in Rio in the favelas because I had lived there, um, you know, before grad school and I became really committed to the people uh, living in those low income communities. And, you know, policing is just so central to their experience of politics and of inequality and of racism um, and poverty. And so, um, I uh, I studied that as a you know for my dissertation and then I kind of transitioned to studying the post 9/11 wars as the co-director of the Cost of War project at Brown um, because I really love being a public scholar and making the link to um, communities like yours here in the United States it feels like I can speak more directly um, when I'm like researching uh, an issue that's very relevant for the United States. Um, so that's how I came to kind of make that link. Uh-oh, I can't hear you, Shauna. I think you're muted. That's <laughs> right. Um, I mute myself when I'm not talking to make sure the auto quality is good, but sometimes there's a little lag. But yeah, so tell us about the Cost of War project. The website is www.costofwar.org. Tell us how Brown decided like, hey, we're going to study how much money we're spending on war. Yeah, it the project Cost of War project was founded uh, over ten years ago now by my two the two other co-directors of the of the project, Catherine Lutz and Nita Crawford, who are both longtime scholars of U.S. militarism. And what they saw was basically the post 9/11 wars were not getting talked about in the media hardly at all at that time. Um, and the point was really, you know, let's bring research into the public sphere. Let's let's use it to to promote people thinking critically about issues of war and militarism and, and prompt people to, to ask big questions that aren't being asked, you know, not only about how much the wars truly cost, um, which is, you know, far more than what the Pentagon says that it does uh, financially, but also we're, we look at human costs, social, political, environmental costs, so of costs in a very broad sense. Well, I, I mean, I know I've used the the information that you have because you're right. If without this um, independent, peer-reviewed uh, facts, right, we would just do whatever the Pentagon says. And what I find as a veteran is a lot of time the Pentagon comes across and is like, 
oh yeah, this money's going towards your uncle with Agent Orange at the VA center, right? Where, well, meanwhile, uh, while I was in, you know, my combat pay was going away. Uh, there's uh, in Texas, uh, there there was just released this year, or actually late fall last year, about how many people in the military are eligible for food stamps. And it's like, okay, how are we spending $14 trillion at the Pentagon if it's really not going in the pockets of your, uh, you know, Uncle Joe who served in Vietnam or Grandpa, you know, it's like, it's not going, it, I I didn't get it. I'm not getting any VA benefits if somebody's there. Who, who's getting this money? Yeah, I think we, we talk about that as one of the big myths about Pentagon spending in this country is that, oh, you know, you need just to overfund the Pentagon basically because you need to support the troops. And the fact of the matter is the money doesn't doesn't really go to the troops. It goes to these defense contractors that, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit more about today. But um, but, you know, I, I my cost of war project is very much aligned with veterans groups like yours because we're all caring about, you know, basically a different definition of what security really means. And let's talk about a security that actually protects people, including the soldiers who go, you know, and fight the wars, uh, the America's wars abroad. So um, I think we really, you know, we really are on the same page on, on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of veterans who join our organization, you know, it's a self-interest thing. That's their first inkling, like, this is, this is not adding up what it's supposed to be. I'm like, I'm not getting the bonuses I was promised. I'm not getting the care that I was promised. Um, where is all this money go is going? And it's like Raytheon is happy to get under this support the troops, support the troops, right? Lockheed Martin, Boeing, they're all, oh, we love the troops, love the troops. Meanwhile, troops are suffering from high suicide rates where it's the only like guaranteed jobs program in the country. And it's not that great. I feel like Starbucks probably pays for college more uh, than uh, joining, going down to your recruiter's office and, and joining that. So uh, can you tell us, like, when you started this project or as this project went on, what is the most startling part of your research? Well, I mean, the numbers are just kind of mind boggling. Um, so some of the research that we're most well known for is that since 9-11, this country has either spent or obligated because there's a there's a portion of money that we've obligated to care for veterans of the post 9-11 wars. Eight trillion dollars, eight trillion. Um, so it really is um, something that is going to shape this country's economic, out, you know, outcomes for a long time. A lot of that is is in borrowed funds. So we're going to, you know, the the U.S. government was actually um, went into the red after 9/11 to start to pay for these wars. Um, so in a you know huge amounts of debt. Uh, that our children are going to be saddled with, and um, and then also the the you know every other thing that you care about in this country that federal funds could be used for, um, and here we get into this fuller sense of security that I was talking about, um, housing, education, green energy, um, you know, racial injustice. Any, you know, anything that you care about, it gets squeezed as military spending goes up. So uh, um, over 50 percent of the federal discretionary budget, that's what gets gets negotiated in Congress every year, currently goes to the military. And that directly um, 
feeds into a kind of lessening of the budget for everything else. Um, oh, sorry. So, and, and other other research that I, um, uh, you know, other astounding research. Um, so, the lives that have been lost in the post 9-11 wars, and that's particularly um, the conflict that the, my project studies, we, we choose to use the term post 9-11 wars instead of war on terror, um, because, you know, it, it, it's a very political term and, and it's, we don't think that it's very productive to kind of reproduce that kind of logic of thinking that there even can be a war on such a thing as terrorism. Um, so uh, th those wars since 9-11 that the U.S. has engaged in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, but also places like Syria and Yemen, uh, as well as some other places in Africa, have cost 929,000 lives. Um, so that is just a huge, huge amount of, um, of destruction and death. And, you know, it's especially um, disheartening when you compare that huge number to the amount of people who have died from terrorist attacks on U.S. soil since 9-11, which numbers in the only in the hundreds. Um, so 929,000 people, um, both American and, and foreign, have died in these wars, these US-led wars. Um, and then the other thing that I think most people in the US aren't aware of um, is just how vast the post 9-11 wars are. Uh, we have a piece of research that I put together that shows the US taking some sort of action against terrorism, um, whether it is, uh, you know, military exercises in the name of counterterrorism or training and assistance, uh, as well as, you know, the ground combat we don't always hear about and airstrikes, uh, all of that taking place in 85 countries. Those were in the last three years of the Trump administration, 2018 to 2020. Um, so obviously that would have to be updated now with current events, but still it gives you a sense of, um, of how vast uh, this, this kind of counter-terror apparatus is. Yeah, thank you um, for saying uh, that, Stephanie. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about AFRICOM, mm. which, um, you know, I've, I've shared this, you know, my experience, my last or final duty assignment was um, a direct, directly involved in the, um, I would say a surge that went greatly or largely under or not reported in American or mainstream media, um, but I, you know, oftentimes I don't hear in a lot of the conversation around the rapid expansion of Africom, um, you know, particularly under the Obama uh, Biden administration. Absolutely. Um, and so I'm curious if you can shed light on what you all are apprised and are tracking in AFRICOM. Yeah, um, and actually I personally, so I, I speak for the Cost of War Project both as an editor, someone who kind of looks at all the papers um, and is able to kind of give a bird's eye view of our research, but I personally have done some research in on, on AFRICOM and US operations in um, Burkina Faso. I did a deep dive there um, and, and actually visited, uh, spent some time in Ouagadougou, which is the capital um, right before the kind of pandemic lockdown. Um, and 
I should preface this by saying that so few people actually knew or or even heard at all that um, the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine, February 24th, um, the US conducted an airstrike on Somalia. Um, and that was against the militant group Al-Shabaab. So we hear a lot about, um, we hear a lot about uh, Russian aggression and the media pays really very little attention to the aggression uh, of the US against, um, particularly against these uh, black and brown bodies abroad. Um, and as you were so rightly pointing out that really um, comes home to roost. There's a lot of connections between the racism of U.S. imperialism abroad and, and police militarization here at home. Um, so Burkina Faso, I was basically asking the question, you know, what does, what does security assistance or security cooperation really mean uh, in West Africa, where there's a growing um, conflict involving what local people call um, jihadism. Um, so these kind of militant groups who are um, a lot of times using this uh, Islamist ideologies. Um, and, uh, you know, what what role, if any, did U.S. security assistance play in that conflict and what have been the consequences? Um, and what I found was that the U.S. has been sending millions of dollars in security assistance, um, as well as providing training to Burkina Faso, along with other countries in West Africa, since right after 9-11. And um, what I found was it's not like the U.S. plays a major role in the conflict of what's going on in West Africa. Um, the, you know, the French, in terms of Western powers, are much more um, heavily involved. Um, and But what I found was that the U.S., all of that funding and the kind of militarized approach, like the mindset of the war on terror, was really adopted and and basically intensified a local conflict. And what's happening is the Burkina Faso government is taking that extra military might, all the extra you know weapons and training and and this kind of war on terror logic. And they're cracking down on an ethnic group called the Fulani, which is this traditionally um, a herding ethnic group uh, that's practiced Islam for centuries. Um, and they're really suffering from uh, from this kind of you know attacks by not only the Burkina Faso military but also these militia groups armed citizen militia groups that that the Burkina Bay parliament has actually um, overtly supported and this is in it's it's kind of having the effect of fueling the conflict further so as people's you know family members and friends get killed by government forces they join the the jihadist movement and then it kind of spirals and makes the whole conflict um, that much worse. So even something that sounds as innocuous as, you know, security assistance and training and assistance um, can have these really uh, profound and, and negative consequences abroad. So it's something we really need to be wary of as well. Yeah. Um... What are you seeing? Is there anything that you would share in terms of, I know the headquarters for um, AFRICOM is at Stuttgart, Germany. Um, is there anything that you're tracking in terms of its um, sort of accelerated um, you know, operations in this moment? Is there anything 
Yeah, then I'm, I'm yeah. yeah I'm, I'm I'm an anthropologist, so the way that I get at that kind of question is, um, it's it's called ethnography. So basically, I do a lot of interviews, and I kind of I'm starting to do more and more um, with members of the you know active members of the military um, as well as you know veterans and others who have left. And the sense that I'm getting is that there is a kind of a um, you know, an intensification and an acceleration in Africa um, that's going in tandem with the drawdown from the official drawdown from Afghanistan. Um, and so, you know, what Biden calls uh, like over the horizon capabilities, like basically the ability to conduct drone strikes from, um, you know, from outside of a country's borders, um, all of that is is continuing to go on. And and I, I really do believe that um, Africa is kind of one of these places that is so undercovered in American media, but it, increasingly important to what I see as a continued, you know, counter-terror war uh, abroad. So, of course, now the um, great power competition with Russia and China is in the mix, and there's all kinds of ways in which the U.S. is kind of competing with Russia and China to provide weapons systems and training and kind of partner with certain governments and have them be like American partners rather than Russian partners. So it's, you know, incredibly complex and all mixed in with um, these other kind of security uh, logics. But um, but yeah, it's really concerning for me and and for others who are um, concerned with you know what this means as far as you know. President Bush called this um, he, he back at the beginning of the war on terror. He said, "Let's extend American power to uh, quote unquote every dark corner of the map." You know, these are kind of overtly racist language and and logics um, that are very much part of the U.S. diagnosis of, you know, African uh, countries as having these, un, un, you know, undergoverned spaces. So you mentioned a lot about the security logic that's used to justify all this war spending. Um, are, are they right? Like if the United States just leaves, that says, all right, we're cutting our uh, Pentagon budget in half, no more private war profiteering. You know, like if we win all of the things we're demanding, right? Uh, is that really what happens? There's a power vacuum and China's the one who's going to supply all these weapons instead? Um, you know, I, I think, I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, it's so hard to predict the future. Um, but what I do know is that when you are, when the U.S. is promoting this kind of militarized um, way of addressing the problem of terrorism, it it seems to make the problem worse and not better. And you really have to ask the big questions of like, are we protecting Americans? Are we protecting people around the world? If not, what should we be doing instead? Um, and you know, to get back to this question of the military-industrial complex, um, there, there's a big argument to be made for uh, a U.S. foreign policy that prioritizes restraint instead of a kind of a military-first approach. And what that means in practice is is prioritizing uh, diplomacy and foreign aid. And you know, I've talked to some African. Um, members of the African African militaries that have partnered with the U.S. And one general told me, he said, you know, if if the U.S. just took that same money 
that they that the millions that go into security assistance for my country and put it into foreign aid, it would go so much further to addressing the root causes of why people are joining these terrorist groups in the first place. Um, so, so you know, it's, it's it's a signaling of how the U.S. perceives that the problem of terrorism can be solved, um, which I think is just so important because we are, you know, a hegemonic power in the world, and it is important to to kind of um, the, the, like other countries take a lot of cues from the way the United States approaches things. Um, so we, it, we does, it does, yeah, it does seem like there's clear winners from militarizing uh, conflicts or tensions rather than letting, uh, you know, nations work with each other diplomatically or assisting nations through aid. We're always like, hey, you know what solved the problem? Guns. Lots more guns. Guess who has guns? We have guns. You know, it's like we spend a lot of money on these guns. And it's like, you know, oh, that saying, like, um, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And that seems to be United States foreign policy. And it doesn't allow um, nations to normalize with each other uh, what they could be doing and how to be more cooperative. Right. There's all kinds of research. We had a paper come out recently about all the ways that you can address the problem of terrorism, for example, that's not war. I mean, you can address it through um, it most effectively through addressing the roots of people's political grievances, sometimes, in, you know, incorporating groups as like legitimate actors in the in the political sphere, um, policing, which, as we know, has its problems. But um, you can treat terrorists as criminals instead of as enemies of the state. And that the, the ripple effects of viewing it through a policing lens rather than a war lens um, are far different. The scale is far less. Um, so, and, and then, you know, and I'll just say like, we've seen this in, in the recent coverage of, of the crisis in the Ukraine. Um, you know, the, the, we see all this talk about the U S sending these billions and millions in, you know, weapons and security assistance. And we see so much less emphasis on, um, you know, the U S kind of bolstering any kind of diplomatic negotiations that are happening, um, even like coverage of kind of nonviolent resistance. I mean, there's been some amazing stories out of Ukraine about, um, you know, changing road signs so the Russian tanks can't find their way around or, um, you know, grandmothers who are kind of standing up to the Russian troops. Uh, President Zelensky saying he would offer amnesty to um, any Russian troops that that defected. I mean, all of those, historically speaking, are very effective tactics when it comes to an invading force. Um, and I think in the U.S. in U.S. society, we we really emphasize we just kind of go to for like doing something is using force and you know I, I think we need to start thinking differently about what taking action abroad can really mean and look like and and think of some really um really different alternatives that it, it's not like they're that radical they're actually very effective um in comparison to a kind of war you know war first mentality Thanks, Stephanie. I'm curious, as an anthropologist, um, and through this, through the project, what are you all looking at in terms of, you know, policy, and what policies, um, you know, when we think about doing this work through the Drop the Mic campaign, we really want to meet people where they are. We really want to organize in a way that is hyper local. Yeah. Right. And so what what we see in our communities um, and then 
you know, build and of course connect that to the federal level, um, the corporations that we've talked about here today. I'm curious if you can share a bit, you know, like what's on your mind, what's coming out of the project of what policies are really informing and can be, um, you know, um, you know, actually reduce the mic, if you will. Yeah. Um, so my information here comes from our expert on um, on this. His name is Bill Hartong. He works for now for the uh, Quincy Institute um, for Responsible Statecraft. Um, and basically, uh, to take first to take a quick step back and just explain um, the contours of this a little bit further. Um, there's a huge lobbying industry. Um, so basically, the defense defense industry employs about 700 lobbyists per year over the past five years, um, which is more than there are members of Congress, about 535 members of Congress, 700 lobbyists. So this is a, you know, this is one of the mechanisms by which um, just the Pentagon budget, it just stays as high as it is. Um, there's also the fact that weapons manufacturers and bases are located in states and districts across the United States. So members of Congress, it's well documented that they have incentives to basically every year throw even more money at the Pentagon uh, than what it asks for. This year, it was something like $20, $20 billion over and above uh, what the Pentagon asked for. Um, and uh, and then there's the you know uh, we've all heard about the revolving door between the defense industry and congressional offices, um, both both you know staff and um, and people in high ranking um, security positions within the administration. You know each administration, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. Um, so Bill has some really uh, kind of concrete recommendations to kind of change this, um, and I'm just going to read them here. Um, so. Basically, um, the first thing we can do about, about the enormous sway of the military industrial complex is to adopt a strategy of a restraint abroad. And that's part of, um, part of what I was talking about before of just you know reducing US troop presence abroad, reducing the number of bases. There's something like 800 US bases around the world. Um, and, uh, and, you know, having a more realistic assessment of the threat that Russia and China pose. There's been a lot of threat inflation around the actual threat that those countries pose to the United States. Um, and and then there's the, so, so there's that, there's the kind of reducing the military footprint abroad um, and, and there are estimates that that could save, um, you know, billions, even, trillion dollars um, in the, you know, in the coming years. Um, and then there's reducing the power of what he calls pork barrel politics and corporate lobbying. Um, so uh, the Pentagon budget this year, it was $778 billion, um, at, which is one of the highest levels since World War II. Um, and um, he says that basically um, what we need to do is, um, is weaken the grip of industry over the budget process. Um, so specifically that, sh that includes prohibiting the armed services from submitting wish lists for items that are not in the Pentagon's official budget requests. Um, and that allows you know, individual members of Congress to kind of add on more to the Pentagon budget request than what it asked for, as I was saying. Um, slowing the revolving door between the government and the arms industry, 
prohibiting members of Congress from investing in defense industry stocks, and strengthening and expanding Congress's truth and testimony rules to provide greater transparency regarding the role of experts from think tanks with ties to the arms industry in presentations to Congress. Because that's another big way that, um, you know, that the kind of disinformation gets uh, perpetuated. Um, measures should also be taken to reduce the economic dependency of key communities on Pentagon spending, uh, including alternative government investment investments in sectors such as inf infrastructure, green technology, and scientific and public health research. And this is really great. Uh, this is a really important point, I think. The major investments in green energy and alternative manufacturing technologies that are needed to address climate change will create millions of jobs that can absorb any workers displaced from reductions in Pentagon spending, because that's one of the biggest arguments for Pentagon spending in Congress. So this creates jobs in my district. So we basically need to find ways to create the, the pork of the pork barrel politics um, outside of the military uh, the, the military industrial complex and, and green energy is a great way to do that. Yeah, that's something our organization has talked about for a while with uh, partners like Grassroots Global Justice that we really, in order to get off the military industrial complex, we need a just transition. Um, it's not, you know, I mean, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, so I definitely understand the economic impact that off the Air Force Base had there. But there's a lot of wind in Nebraska, and if we could invest in Omaha, Nebraska, and wind technology, take all the money that we were investing into Offit and put it towards that instead, then, you know, politicians would have a way to win because they would have a way to invest in their communities, say, hey, I'm doing my work of representing you in Congress by improving the economy and making sure that you can put dinner on the table, and it's not about making bombs or, um, you know, uh, uh, militarizing the police or all these things that don't really help the economy. That was one of the most interesting things that I read in the Cost of War project was something like, you know, so people will say, okay, we need security. Okay, well, we've kind of done away with that, how we kind of exacerbate and, and don't make us less safe by coming in and saying, okay, the answer is this military stuff that we've invested a lot of money into. That doesn't make any sense. And now you're getting kind of into the economic, well, we need the military industrial complex to stimulate the economy. And that's what the pork barreling is for. But it's really not, like if those 700 lobbyists weren't around, that's really not the way that we could, uh, you know, have economic uplift here at home. We could, uh, one of the things I read from Brown Cost of War was that for every dollar you put into the defense industry, you get 83 cents back into the economy. But for every dollar that you put into healthcare, you get $4 back into the economy. So something like, uh, you know, the deinstitutionalization of psychiatric care. If we brought those back and spent, had more social spending, you would create jobs that way as well. Right, so that's exactly what I was gonna say is per dollar spent, if you take that same money that you're investing in the defense industry and, and put it in, in most other sectors, including, education, healthcare, as well as green energy, you're gonna actually create far more jobs per dollar spent. Um, so, you know, the, the trick is how do we, you know, basically we, we need to raise public awareness about this and, and 
you know, for the listeners who are the, out there, you know, it, it's such an important issue to kind of raise your voices on with your members of Congress, um, because, you know, the, the writing letters and, and making phone calls and, and just telling them, like, you know, we want our jobs to come from in other sectors. Um, I think, it, it, you know, that's the kind of thing on a massive scale that can start to make a difference. You know, this is a huge entrenched problem, structural problem, the military industrial complex. Um, but I always say like, we need to just kind of take one step at a time and put, keep putting one foot in front of the other and just, you know, just advocate for change in the, the small local level ways that we can, you know, one step at a time. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, yeah, this has been great to just, you know, talk with you and to, you know, learn more about the project. Um, yeah, I would love to hear if there's anything before we move to close and wrap. Is there anything that you would like to lift up that we may not have asked that you think is, you know, important um, for the general public to, to, to understand and know? You know, I, I would like to just kind of circle back, Natasha, to your comments at the in the opening um, and just reflect that there are, you know, there is a lot of scholarship on how from, I mean, the earliest days of the United States of America as a country, um, our foreign policy and our, you know, domestic policies have been really intertwined when it comes to issues of race. Um, and so the 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 kind of, I mean, I, I really see that that's one of the big reasons why um, the U.S. is able to, to, you know, undertake an airstrike in Somalia, for example, without anyone in the U.S. really paying attention. Um, and, and we see, um, just as you were talking about, we see those militarized, um, foreign policies kind of coming home to roost. And it's not just the 1033 um, uh, weapons transfer program. It's, it's you know, surveillance systems in black and brown communities um, and, uh, and, and lots of other things as well. So um, I think, you know, there's this tendency to think uh, that these, all these issues are happening kind of so far away from us and from our, our, you know, more intimate uh, lives, but but I think that that they really this is these issues are so intimately connected with kind of our day to day realities, you know, in the police militarization, in the ways that our government is choosing to spend taxpayer money, uh, the priorities that are being that it's that it's spending money on. Um, so this is something that really affects each and every single American deeply, whether whether or not we are a service member or a veteran or have one in our families. Uh, and most Americans just don't realize that. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This has been um, great. Before we move to close, I just want to um, open up. Shauna, do you have any final thoughts? Um, or a, a final question before we end today's amazing conversation. Uh, no, thank you so much, Stephanie. Uh, we as an organization use your research to really power our campaign, our, our signature campaign, the Drop the Mic campaign. And so it's been really awesome to have you on to know like things we say in public are like based in fact. 
yes. that uh, what we're talking about, it's not some, because I, I was reading an article that one of America's favorite pastimes is like hippie punching, right? Like when we've got a war in Ukraine going on, us coming on and being like, hey, anti-war actually is a solution. You know, people are just like, no, it's not. You can't do that. Russians have tanks. It's like, yeah, but all the Russian anti-war activists right now mm-hmm. are bringing, are making it a huge problem for Putin right right now, right? And if we had more awareness uh, of all the people who, who could use anti-war to bring about peace, it's not some hippie thing. Uh, I mean, we're veterans. We've witnessed the corruption and how the system doesn't work and how it could work instead. We're saying this, right? Um, so it's always nice to be like, to come back to the source and be like, yo, no, we're right. <laughs> this is actually the way we need to structure our economy for ourselves and for world peace. Like, you don't, it shouldn't be that the only guaranteed job program in this country is based on either you dying or killing someone else. There's so many more options. There's so many other things that we can invest in that don't have that, that aren't based on violence that we could move towards and that we need to get back to. And so we as veterans are going to um, be re- going really hard after the corporations and the lobbyists and uh, our congressional representatives to be like, make money somewhere else. Good. You know, find some other way to redo your bathrooms. <laughs> Keep on waging war on people all over the world. Yeah. yeah particularly as we're in this ongoing pandemic. I mean, no time, no better opportunity than to have this conversation. The contradictions are really in front of us. Um, and so to see so much need, growing need in, in communities um, across our nation and to see, you know, I think back to how it took our representatives, our elected representative months to come up with, you know, what, $600 for the people during, you know, a devastating pandemic. Um, and then to contrast that with the rapid speed in which, you know, funds are, you know, moved out, you know, outside of our country um, is, you know, it sends a chilling effect. And so, again, um, no matter how you're impacted by, um, the military industrial complex, we invite you to have these conversations with us. Stephanie, you know, the project and the work that you all are doing is super important um, for our work. Um, I look forward to working with you and how we can collaborate more um, and, and connect our membership um, and our viewers and our really our relationships um, to the work that you all do. Absolutely. Same here. I really look forward to it. And, and as I told, as I said earlier, I mean, you all are are what makes our work meaningful. You are the ones bringing it into practice and making it real and out there making change. And we're just glad that our research is useful to groups like yours. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, everyone. This concludes our um, live for today. We invite you to stay with us each Monday. Next week, we're going to have a great discussion with Lisa Ling, who is a drone um, whistleblower and really organizes um, in a powerful way to bring um, public awareness around the drones, you know, surveillance. Um, and so she'll be joining us live from Kill uh, Cloud, um, you know, uh, symposium or summit that's uh, in live from Berlin. So looking forward to that conversation with Lisa. Um, We'll do this um, on Mondays 
2 p.m. Eastern, right here on Facebook, YouTube, or streaming on, on Twitter. Um, and we hope to see you then. Engage with us. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Be well. Thanks again, Stephanie, Shauna. Be well. Thanks, Natasha. Thanks, you too. What an incredible episode. Really breaking down the cost of war and how it's just a terrible investment. In addition to all the moral tribulations we have with uh, bombing other countries as our main foreign policy. Thanks so much for listening. And if you liked it, please share, please comment, please help us get this podcast out there. We need more anti-war media like this. And I so appreciate you listening and you supporting us. And if you want your own drop the mic shirt or any other merchandise, visit store.aboutfaceveterans.org. That's a great way to support this podcast.